Well, what a privilege to be here this morning and to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with all of you. I want to uh, tell you as we start just a little bit about myself when I was growing up. Just so you know, Abu Dhabi was where I was born and this is where I spent most of my life. But I want to take you back to the time when I was in my high school. In my high school, if you wanted to get ahead, you had to have the right kind of friends. Now, if you were friends with the popular kids in my school, you could be cool. But you see, cool doesn't get you anywhere. If you wanted a position of power, like the position of the head boy or the assistant head boy, then being friends with the popular kids was not going to help you. You had to be friends with the teachers. This is what I did. Now, mind you, this was all before I became a Christian. Now, it's not exactly every high schooler's dream for their best friends in their high school to be their teachers. But even from a young age, I could tell that those kind of connections, those kinds of connections would be really helpful for me to advance my political agenda. So picture this. In my break times, I would spend uh, time in my vice principal's office uh, just shooting the breeze, catching up on his day, asking him about his kids, cracking jokes together. And after many months of spending time this way, I got what I longed for the most, which was the position of the assistant head boy. <laughs> now looking back, it was a lot of work for not much glory. <laughs> you see, it seems that in this world, in order to get ahead, it's really, really important to have the right kind of friends, the right kind of connections. So if your CEO likes you, you're more likely to get a promotion. If your university professor likes you, you're more likely to get picked for special projects. This is the way this world works. Now this morning, we are going to read from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And in the passage we are just about to read, we are going to see James and John two of Jesus' disciples, who also get this principle about how to advance their ambitions in this world. So let's hear from God's Word now. as so we read from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to him, said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, there are three things uh, I would like for us to see from this passage. This will be helpful if you're taking down notes. These are the three points of the sermon. The question, an answer, a solution. A question, an answer, and a solution. Let's first observe the question that James and John, Jesus' disciples, make of Jesus. Now, at this point in uh, Mark's gospel, the disciples have been with Jesus for a while, and they have seen Jesus do amazing things. And they are used to people treating them differently because of their connection with Jesus. They have seen Jesus exercise authority over nature. They have seen Jesus exercise authority over demons. They have seen Jesus exercise authority even over death. People love Jesus. They are amazed at him. Crowds want to follow Jesus. The disciples knew that glory was coming for them. Now, when you come to Mark chapter 8, if you've been reading through Mark's gospel, and you hit Mark chapter 8, it is a moment of celebration because the disciples discover for the first time something about Jesus that they have never discovered before. And that is that Jesus is Christ. They finally find out that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And from what they think they know about the Messiah, it was only going to get better for them from here. You know, this question that James and John makes of Jesus is audacious on many different levels. Firstly, you know, they are trying to get ahead of the other disciples by being the first ones to ask Jesus for these positions of glory. Now, Jesus has nowhere talked about these positions before in Mark's gospel. Nowhere has he ever indicated that these positions are up for grabs. But James and John, they think they are more deserving of it than the other disciples. And the other disciples, well, they don't appreciate this bit of cunning and scheming. Notice in verse 41, they are indignant with James and John. Why were the other disciples so angry with James and John? You see, it's probably because they wish they were the first ones to ask Jesus. Secondly, this question wasn't much of a request as much as a demand. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in glory. See, we learn a lot about the disciples from this. The disciples had such a skewed view of themselves and a skewed view of who Jesus was. They thought that they were truly in a position to demand things of Jesus and that 
Jesus was in a place and it was Jesus' duty to give them whatever they wanted. Did they really understand who Jesus was? Thirdly, and most shockingly, this question comes right on the heels of an important prediction that Jesus makes of his life. Please look with me at verses 32 to 34 of Mark chapter 10. Mark tells us, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And the first thing James and John thought to ask Jesus after this is grant us to sit at your right and left in glory. Now, you know, this is the third time that Jesus has been teaching about what is about to happen to him. And, this, and the time he has taught before this, which is in Mark chapter 9, verses 32, we are told that the disciples do not understand what Jesus is teaching. Jesus was teaching about what was going to be his most difficult and painful mission. And instead of asking him what he means, if they, that's what you do when you don't understand something, they are focused on advancing their own agenda. You know, it's hard for us to relate to this kind of callousness and blind ambition that we see in the disciples. But you know, this is a temptation for all of us. It's tempting to want to make a name for ourselves in this world, to be successful, to get ahead in this world. You know, there are whole businesses that are built just to help people achieve this. Many people have written books that are on best-selling lists because they teach people how to get ahead in this life, how to be truly successful. Now, there's nothing bad in and of itself, but pride and ambition have the ability to dull our eyes. They have the ability to keep us from being able to see Jesus. Look at James and John. They were standing face to face with Jesus, the God of the universe, who was telling them, just them, his plan to save the world at a great cost to himself. But all they could see in his eyes was their own reflection. They missed what Jesus was teaching. They missed seeing Jesus. Friends, we too can get so caught up in our own agenda. We can be so caught up in thinking about our own glory that we can miss seeing Jesus too. And you know, like James and John, we too can give the appearance of following Jesus closely. You know, attending church regularly, going to Bible studies often, doing Christian things. But as long as our hearts are fixed on our own glory, we will never be able to live for the glory of Jesus. Jesus' agenda is very different to John's, James and John's agenda. 
or the agenda of this world or the agenda of sinful people in this world. Jesus, unlike James and John or the disciples, is seeking first and foremost to honor the Father. This is why Jesus left his position of glory, came into this world, took on human flesh, suffered, humbled himself. It was so that he would fulfill his Father's purpose. Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who would come, who would make a way for his people to be saved from their sins. He would restore his people to a right relationship with God. And he would do all this not in the way the disciples expected. You see, the disciples expected the Messiah to come like a conquering king who would come and physically deliver them from their enemies and give them glory in this world. But to their disappointment, Jesus came like an ordinary man, weak in every way. And Jesus was teaching that he was going to die the death of a common criminal. It was scandalous, to say the least. This is why in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus first teaches about his upcoming suffering, his death, Peter takes him aside and rebukes Jesus for saying that. And what was Jesus' reply to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Not even when Peter denied Jesus, did Jesus say this about him. Get behind me, Satan. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But you see, Peter was doing exactly what Satan wanted him to do. He was standing in the way of the Messiah accomplishing his purpose in the world to save his people. And Peter was so fixated on his earthly glory that he could not see that what Jesus was talking about. You see, a weak Messiah is a Messiah to be ashamed of. A weak Messiah is a Messiah to be despised. A weak Messiah is someone who is not worth following to the disciples. You see, it's in our nature to look down on weakness, isn't it? It's something we notice in ourselves even from a young age. So nobody wants to be that kid who gets beat up in every recess. Everyone wants to be the biggest, the strongest, the fastest. No one ever chooses to be weak. Given a choice, we would always choose to be strong and powerful. But not so with Jesus. You see, for Jesus, weakness is the way. And Jesus isn't saying that perhaps people will kill him. No, he's saying this is the plan all along. He's going to walk right into it. And he is going to allow the Messiah to be killed by the hands of evil men and die a shameful and humiliating death. Death on the cross. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. This is how he would save his people. But this is not what the disciples signed up for. You know, they left everything to follow this Messiah. They thought that their lives were only going to take an upward trajectory. So they don't like what Jesus is talking about now. You know, every year we have the um, privilege of taking our student leaders through the Gospel of Mark for a week. 
we just finished doing that with about 55 of our student leaders a couple of weeks ago. And even though I have been doing this for 10 years with my students, I feel every year I learn something new from my students. This year, a student who just came to Christ noticed as he was reading Mark's gospel that the disciples are only brave and bold when Jesus demonstrates power. So they're brave and bold when Jesus demonstrates power over evil spirits. He demonstrates power over nature, demonstrates power over people. When he crushes the arguments of the Pharisees, when the crowds love him, but the minute he appears weak and helpless, they don't want him anymore. They flee, they desert him, they even deny him. You know, during one of our Muslim-Christian dialogues that we had the opportunity to do in Dubai, one of the comments the Muslim speaker made regarding Jesus uh, in light of this passage was that Jesus was a poor communicator because the disciples did not understand what Jesus was teaching, and therefore they were ill-prepared for his death. But the Christian speaker rightly responded, saying, see, the problem is not with Jesus or his teachings. But the problem is with the disciples who couldn't even understand the plain teaching of Jesus when he taught about his suffering and death. You know, the disciples are doing something here that we are all prone to doing. They tune out what Jesus is saying when it is difficult to hear. They only hear what they want to hear. They apply selective listening. And they are talking at Jesus. You know, it's easy for us to laugh at the disciples, mock them when we see their blindness. But this is an issue that we all struggle with in our lives. Jesus is speaking to us even today through his word. But what do we do when his words fly against our agendas, our desires? It's tempting for us to do what the disciples are doing, to just tune him out to just hear the parts that we like to hear and not listen to the hard teachings that Jesus clearly gives through his word to our lives. This could relate to, you know, our choice of career or who we decide to date and marry or where we live, how we spend our time, even what we watch or what we listen to. Jesus has something to say about every aspect of our lives. He's king over us. He demands to rule our lives completely. And if we decide to do things regardless of whether it honors Jesus or not, whether it glorifies him or not, we, like Peter, will find ourselves standing in opposition to Jesus. And that is a dangerous place for us to be. Let me ask you, at this point in your life, is there something that Jesus is saying to you through his word that is making you uncomfortable? Is there something that the Bible is telling you that you don't really want to hear? Friends, don't ignore what he's saying. If you truly desire to follow Christ, you have to do it on his terms. But you know the amazing thing is that Jesus can change our hearts. It's a great prayer to pray. God, open my eyes. Have mercy on me. 
Jesus delights to show mercy on us. Even here, we see Jesus being merciful to James and John. Even in the midst of such a stupid request. Let's consider secondly, Jesus' answer to James and John. See, Jesus explains to them the cost of what they are asking. Verse 38, he asks them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And James and John foolishly, without knowing what they're saying, say, yes. Don't you just wish you could just get in there and tell them, be careful what you wish for? You see, the image of cup and baptism is used in the Old Testament. Water in baptism is used in the Old Testament to describe God's wrath for the sins of mankind. And what Jesus is teaching here is that he is going to drink that cup. He is going to take upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of man when he dies on the cross. And there is no way anyone else is going to be able to pay that or drink that cup to bear that. So when Jesus is telling James and John and the disciples that you'll be able to, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized, he's telling them that if you follow me, you will not have to experience God's wrath for your sins, but there will be persecution that is promised to everybody who follows Jesus. They will experience persecution from governments, families, friends, really all who are enemies of the cross. This is a universal Christian experience, not just for a few. You know, all Christians, including you and me, will have a taste of this cup if we choose to follow Jesus. And this can be a hard pill for many to swallow. And it is only as we see the surpassing greatness of the life that we have in Christ that we will be able to bear it. You know, uh, some time back, we had a student in one of our universities. We'll call him Daniel. He came to faith while studying the Bible. And he wanted to go to his family uh, in his country and tell them about what God has done in his life. And uh, when he went home, he told them uh, in great detail um, how he has come to Christ, explained the gospel to them, pleaded with them to turn to Jesus as well. And they got, got together, they started mocking him, they put him under house arrest, they refused to let him return to his Christian community or church. You see, Daniel didn't have the luxury of waiting for a while before experiencing what Jesus is talking about here. And this is the experience that Christians, many Christians around the world have. Now, perhaps you are here this morning and you are experiencing or have experienced the kind of suffering that Jesus is talking about here. The suffering that comes on account of the gospel. Suffering that comes to you, particularly because you follow Jesus. And if that is you, I want to encourage you by saying that suffering is not the end of the Christian life. No, there is glory that Jesus has promised to us when he returns. And let me also encourage you by saying that you are not alone in your suffering. 
Jesus promises that he will never leave us. He is with us. And this has been the experience of Christians for thousands of years who have suffered because they have followed Jesus. See, Jesus has gone before us, and we can find great encouragement in that. See, Jesus also addresses their heart's desire to become truly great. You know, he's gracious with James and John, and this should be an encouragement for us as we see the same sin, the sin of pride and ambition in our lives as well. You know, he doesn't rebuke them here for wanting to be great, but he actually teaches them about the path to true greatness. And it's something that is unexpected because it's not the way the world thinks. Jesus says the way to be great is by serving. You know, in the world's eyes, the one who is great is the one who is being served by others, the one who has many people waiting on him. It's like the Gentiles in verse 42. They achieve greatness as so many people do even today by trampling on other people, forcing others to serve them by being bullies. But Jesus is teaching that to be great in the kingdom of God, we must be servants and slave of all. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, this is a hard teaching for us to follow. It can seem distasteful for us, especially as we live in a world where people manipulate, they cheat, they deceive, exploit, and abuse others to get to the top and stay at the, stay at the top. You see, in the world we live in, people look down on Christians because they follow this teaching that Jesus gives here to serve and to be a slave of all. So if you follow Jesus, you might be treated poorly. You might be made fun of, ridiculed. Or even worse, you might be abused in your workplace or in your schools because of following Jesus. And in such situations, it's hard for us to apply this teaching that Jesus is giving to take up a position of weakness and humility when we know that people are out to get us, when people hate us for following Jesus. But look at Jesus' life. He's holding his own life out for us as an example to follow. He could have shut down everyone who opposed him. He certainly had the authority and power to do that. But he took the path of humility and service. How amazing it is to see that this is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. How amazing it is to see how different the kingdom of God is to this world. That the way to become great is by serving and by being a slave of all. So when we are hated and reviled, when people think less of us because we follow Jesus, when we look weak in the world's eyes, the way that Jesus looked weak in the world's eyes, we are called to serve the way that Jesus served because that's what it means to be great. Not in the world's economy, but in God's economy. You know, my father-in-law, who is a believer and an elder in the church that I am part of, after he came to Christ, was taken advantage of by his business partner. The man knew that he was always going to be honest. And so his partner stole all his money. He lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his, 
all his life savings, he's left, he was left with nothing. It was tempting for Frank to do what had been done to him. But instead, he went to his office and he told his partner that he forgave, he forgave him and he shared the message of Jesus with his partner. Never before in his partner's eyes has Frank looked so weak than that moment when he extended the gospel of grace to the one who stole everything from his life. In fact, his partner, after he heard Frank share the gospel with him, actually told him, look how weak your God is that he can't even stop you from suffering in this life. You see, what he didn't realize is that God was using suffering to teach Frank something he could have not learned in any other way. To teach him, to give him something that money could never buy. And that is the joy of serving others. The joy of laying down your life even for your enemy. The joy of becoming like Jesus. See, this teaching on serving one another cannot be applied if we are a lone ranger Christian. So if, you know, in our efforts to want to be holy and great in the kingdom of God, you know, move to an island and live all by ourselves, physically or metaphorically, we cannot be great in the kingdom of God. The only way to be great is by serving one another as we live in community with one another. And God has designed the church to be the place where his disciples can lay down their lives for one another, the way that Christ has laid down his life for them. So we come to church, not as consumers, but as those who are coming to serve others. Think of what a clear witness to the gospel that is, when Christians lay down their lives for each other, the way that Christ laid down his life for them. You know, this kind of community where members not just once in a while serve each other this way, but actually commit to loving each other and serving each other the way that Christ has served them sacrificially. You know, this kind of community testifies to the gospel of Jesus because it does not make sense apart from the gospel of Jesus. That's why God has used the church to be the instrument through which the gospel is put on display to the watching world. So we rejoice with someone in our church who gets a promotion, even if it means that we've not been able to find work or we are struggling financially. We weep with those who have lost their loved ones in our church, even if we never knew them. We work hard to see others in our church grow spiritually by studying the Bible with them, getting together with them to pray for them, encouraging them spiritually, holding them accountable in their struggle with sin. We invite others in our church who look nothing like us into our homes. We prepare meals for them just so that we can get to know them and love them. This is the kind of love that displays the gospel. You know, and when those who do not know Jesus sees this kind of community, they are attracted to this community. They are attracted to Jesus 
because this is something you cannot find in the world. Having said that, we must admit, serving is costly. Laying down our lives, even for our brothers and sisters, is hard. But Jesus does not call us to do something he has not done himself. Let's look at the third point, the solution. Verse 45, Jesus teaches, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus' life shapes our discipleship. So we live like Jesus lived. We serve like Jesus served. We love others like the way that Jesus loved us. But Jesus' service and his love is more than just a good example for us to follow. It's also a unique ransom that secures the salvation of his people. So if Jesus did not give his life up as a ransom for us, there is no way we can be saved. Jesus did not choose to save himself. He did not walk away from the cross. He could have. He chose to obey the Father. He allowed himself to be the one that would bear all the punishment for those who would believe in him on their behalf, on the cross. You know, when we get to heaven, it is not because we have served or we have laid down our lives for our others, even for our enemies. No, there is nothing we have done to be deserving of Christ's love for us. Nothing. See, apart from Jesus' work on the cross, there is no hope for us to be saved. This verse 45, it tells us a lot about ourselves. It tells us that we need to be ransomed. It is because we are slaves to sin, bound by it. But it also tells us about the price that was required to set us free. So serious was our sin that it required the life of the perfect Son of God to pay for it. So serious was our sin. Now, friends, I wonder if you think of your sin so seriously that it requires lifeblood to pay for it. Do you, do you think that as you see your sin, it is not that big a deal? Do you think that you can cover it up with your good works, that God will be pleased if you just live a good life? You see, if that was the case, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come and give his life up as a ransom for us. No, our sin is so serious that we deserve death. We deserve eternal damnation. That we, that's what we rightly deserve for our sin. But how amazing it is that in, in light of that, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us. He paid it all through his death on the cross for all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. You know, on the cross, the most amazing exchange took place. All of our sin was put on him and all of his righteousness that Jesus achieved through his perfect obedience to the Father was credited to us as a free gift from God to us. How amazing is that? Paul says it so well later. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what God is offering to us through Christ. See, the most amazing thing is that 
Jesus did not remain dead. But after he paid our debt, he rose from the dead victoriously. He's alive. He's alive right now. And our lives are hidden in him. And we know that because he is alive, nothing, nothing will be able to keep us from being with Jesus in glory when he comes back. Nothing. Not sin, not Satan, not death. Not trials, suffering, or persecution. Nothing will be able to keep us from being with Jesus in glory. That's because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. Friend, if you are here and you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask if you can think of any other person who has done what Jesus has done, or any other God for that matter, who has done what Jesus has done. See, no other religion talks about a God who serves us, certainly not the way that Jesus served us. Only Christ has given his life as a ransom for us. You can know him. You can receive the gift of life that he's come to give. Repent and trust in him alone to save you. If you'd like to think about that more, I'd love to talk to you or Pastor Steve or the other believers in the church. For those of us who are in Christ, friends, how amazing it is that we are saved by grace. We live now not to serve ourselves anymore. We have been served. We live to serve others. You know, many years ago, I remember I was taking a trip to Syria, and I was sitting next to a, a, a doctor who appeared to be a very religious and devout man, and I was wrestling with this passage. I was wrestling with what it means to become a slave of all and to serve others. And so I turned to this man and asked him, what does he think about this verse? And he said, you know, I seek to live this way too. I seek to serve others and give my life up for others. And I said, but how can you? It's such a difficult teaching. What would possibly motivate you to do this? And he said, it is because he believes that if he lives this way, when he meets God on the judgment day, God will forgive his sins. That if he loves others this way, that God will accept him into heaven. And then it clicked for me that what the Bible says, is exactly the opposite. That we serve because Jesus served us. You see, the good news in the gospel is that even when we were enemies of God, God loved us. He gave us heaven. We are citizens of heaven now. We await Jesus coming back, not with fear, but with joy, eagerness, great anticipation. Now we serve out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. I told him all this. And uh, he said, if this is true, if what Jesus, if what you say that Jesus has done to serve us is true, he said, then I can think of no greater motivation to serve others and love others than that. I'm not sure if he knew what he was saying. 
but he's right. Friend, there is no greater motivation to serve others, love others, than the fact that Christ is our ransom. That's why we can even give up our very lives in service to others, because we don't lose anything. We have gained Christ. Now, the amazing thing about the story is that even though we see that the disciples are completely clueless here, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after they received the Holy Spirit, they became remarkably different people. They weren't consumed anymore with who was the greatest disciple, but they became consumed with the glory of God. In persecution, trials, and suffering, they rejoiced. They refused to be ashamed of Jesus, but sought to give their lives to make the gospel known and see the church of Christ be built. Their eyes were always fixed on Christ, who was the great treasure of their souls, their great reward. Even in the face of death, they could not be stopped from serving others by proclaiming Christ. They were great, truly great in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you. Look to Christ, your ransom. Seek the greatness that comes in the kingdom of God and serve. Serve even to the point of death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are amazed as we hear the gospel in your word every time. We're amazed that you would send your son to be our ransom, to redeem us with his own life. He shed his blood. He obeyed you perfectly. And because of that, he has accomplished salvation for all of us. Oh God, we are amazed that you would save us when we were in rebellion with you. Father, how amazing is your love for us. Oh God, we pray that this love would compel us to love others. We pray that we would seek to lay down our lives for others because we have Christ who laid down his life for us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would transform us, enable us, equip us so that we would do what you have called us to do. Pray this, Lord, for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.